What is the history of the charismatic movement? That is a good question. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Church Questions, a place where listeners like you can ask questions about theology, history, leadership, church culture, or anything else having to do with successful Christian living in today's world. I'm your host, Pastor Don McKegg. Today's question, what is the history of the charismatic movement? This question comes to us from a previous podcast where I was talking a little bit about the charismatic movement, and somebody wanted some more history. To talk about the charismatic movement and to talk about where we are with the charismatic movement, I want to start with a quote. And this is a quote from one of my textbooks that I used in seminary. It's called History of the Church, Volume 2, From Pre-Reformation to Present Day, and it was written by John D. Woodbridge and Frank A. James III. This is the quote that I want us to start this whole discussion with. Reputable scholars assert that in the year 2000, Pentecostal numbers, which we're going to get into the difference between Pentecostal and Charismatic, but for right now, in an academic term, they're going to go together. Reputable scholars assert that in the year 2000, Pentecostal numbers worldwide were increasing at the rate of nearly 19 million people a year. One scholar has concluded that the Pentecostal surge is the most significant religious movement since the birth of Islam or the Protestant Reformation, and that Pentecostals may well by now account for one of every three Christians in the world. Again, this has come from Church History Volume 2 from Pre-Reformation to the Present Day by John D. Woodbridge and Frank A. James. This is a textbook that I used in one of my church history classes in seminary. I learned, I distinctly remember a section in that class devoted to the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement that scholars and academics are now starting to recognize that the way that we are going to label and frame the 20th century is the rise of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And I wanted to open with this quote because I needed to put the charismatic movement into some perspective for some folks. Because there are still a lot of people out there, a lot of good Christian people, who think that the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement or the Word and Faith, Word of Faith movement or the uh, or the full gospel movement, like I said, we'll talk about the differences of all of this, but they still in their mind are thinking 50, 60 years ago when these were fringe groups, when when people that fell into these categories were just some fringe people that had a little rundown church on the edge of town where just 18 people met, but nobody really knew what was going on in the building. And I need us to understand that the charismatic movement is no longer a fringe group, no longer represents the outsiders looking in one out of every three Christians in the world, in the world, fall into this category. 33% of the Christians you know are charismatic. Now, that's probably not true if you go to a church that's not charismatic at all, and it's probably not true if you go to a church that is charismatic. But to give some perspective to this, one in every two Christians in the world are Roman Catholic. 
one in every two Christians in the world are Protestant, just general Protestant. So we're talking about a significant number of people that fall into the charismatic movement category. And this number blows people away. People that have been in the charismatic movement their whole lives, people that are new to it, people who have no idea what it is. And that's why I wanted to start with it. Because for people who are not in the charismatic movement, I I want you to understand some of the history of this because it's going to give you some insights into what's happening in the Christian culture right now. For people who are in charismatic churches or churches that lean that way, because there's kind of a a neo-charisma going on right now, and again, we'll we'll get into that, Um, it will help you understand your roots, and it will help you understand where you came from and how we got to the place that we are right now. So uh, that said, let's go ahead and start getting into some of the meat of this because there are four groups that I want us to identify. Really, there's three groups and one term, Pentecostals, Charismatics, and Word of Faith. Uh, And then full gospel is the term that I want everybody to understand. Because when we're talking about the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement, this is not all just one homogenous group. Just like there are different denominations in general, there are a lot of denominations that fall into this Pentecostal charismatic group. They have nuanced beliefs. They have different interpretations of things. They they see Scripture differently in some areas. And just like any other denomination exists from any other denomination, that is true with these uh, charismatic and Pentecostal denominations as well. But what we can see, because this belief system and the core of this belief system is so young, we can trace a lot of this back really well. Because we're talking about really 120 years, give or take, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, kind of depending on on how you phrase things, or frame things, rather. But really, it's about 120 years that this line of thinking um, has been prominent, has been in the public eye, and we've been able to trace things really pretty well, the development of denominations, people involved, all of those kinds of things. And what we're going to see as we walk through the history of this is that it started with Pentecostalism, then it moved into the Charismatics, then it got to the Word of Faith group, but now there is a, a general term just called full gospel. Um, So let's talk about the theological differences in all of these. Let's look at some of the distinctive markers, um, and then we'll get into the actual history of the whole thing, because we need to understand what we're talking about when we get into the history of the whole thing. So Pentecostalism started first, and the real marker for Pentecostalism was speaking in tongues. And this is like the controversial thing, speaking in tongues. Um, The charismatic movement, which happened after the Pentecostal movement, also involved supernatural healing and gifts, which is in some circles also a bit controversial. But if we wanted to just call the elephant in the room an elephant in the room, the reason why charismatic movement and why charismatics in the past have made so many people upset is the idea of speaking in tongues. What is speaking in tongues? Well, Paul talks about the gift of speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians. He lists this as one of the supernatural gifts, and it's supposed to be accompanied by the interpretation of tongues. We're talking about chapter 13 here. Um, 
and he lists it as speaking in tongues. Some of your translations may uh, include speaking in other languages, and, and some people have interpreted that as there is a supernatural gift of becoming a translator, and now we can do mission work and, and be, because people are gifted in that way. But the way that the Pentecostals and the Charismatics and, and the Word of Faith people, uh, people who believe in speaking in tongues as a supernatural gift, the way that they would push against that is anybody can become an interpreter. So this can't be about interpretation because these are supernatural gifts that have come from God. Speaking in tongues, therefore, is speaking in a heavenly language, or some would call it a prayer language. It is the crying of your soul. It's it's words that your spirit is uttering to God that your head may not understand what you are saying. It literally is an otherworldly language. Um, so that is what the, the Pentecostals have really hung their hat on, is speaking in tongues. Some of the discrepancies that you find within the Pentecostals is what that does to uh, a person's standing of salvation. There are some groups that think that it is necessary for salvation, that you have to speak in tongues or you're not actually saved. And you can imagine how that line of thinking might rub other people the wrong way. Of course, there are plenty of Pentecostals that don't believe that, that they think it's just a, a great gift, but it is something that all Christians have access to. Um, so then the charismatic movement happened, and we'll get into dates here in a little bit. The charismatic movement happened. They still held on to speaking in tongues, but they took the rest of 1 Corinthians and said, why aren't we seeing supernatural healing? Why aren't we seeing miracles? Why aren't we seeing these great moves of faith and, and these prophetic words and, um, and, and seeing into the future? And, and so that's where the charismatics really started developing this faith culture of seeing the same miraculous work that we read about in the Gospels and Acts, that what Jesus was doing was laying a foundation, a model to be copied. A lot of folks would teach that Acts is a descriptive book, not a prescriptive book, meaning it's supposed to be read and observed, not copied, but the Charismatics would say, no, it's supposed to be copied. Jesus performed miracles. He equipped the 72 to perform miracles. He taught his disciples to perform miracles, and they did, who they taught their disciples to perform miracles, and somewhere along the way, the church just stopped doing them, and so the Charismatics were reviving this this idea of signs and wonders, signs and wonders that we're going to heal the sick, watch the lame walk, watch the blind eyes open, we're going to calm the seas, we're going to do these miraculous things. Then a little bit later on, on this foundation again, so we saw the Charismatics build on the foundation. The Pentecostal said, we see speaking in tongues in Scripture uh, right here. So we need to speak in tongues. Charismatic said, well, we see other things in Scripture, so we need to add it to that. Then the Word of Faith group said, well, we see other things in Scripture as well. And the Word of Faith group are the ones that stand on the promises of God, that they look all throughout Scripture and they see that God has issued promises, promises to bless, promises to uh, give Christian people or, or give his children certain blessings or certain graces, and that what the Christian person is supposed to do is read Scripture, understand what those blessings are, understand what those promises are, and then using Scripture to pray with and adding faith to it can now start to see those promises move in their life. This is where you're going to start hearing phrases like name it and claim it, or positive confession, or um, put your faith to it, that kind of stuff. 
Um, and, and this is also the group where the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel is alive and well. And the prosperity gospel um, or the health and wealth gospel looks at some scripture and says these promises that we have access to include financial blessing and health in our bodies. Uh, and so that's the health and wealth or prosperity gospel. I actually don't know anybody that believes in the prosperity gospel that uses that terminology, by the way. That is that is uh, something that other people have given to that uh, line of thinking. And I would also say that not everybody in the Word of Faith movement is a, a member of the prosperity gospel or health and wealth gospel. Uh, but that's where that group settles. And then there's a term that I want us all to know, which is called full gospel. Full gospel is a term that some churches use to say that they believe in the supernatural gifts, they might believe in some of these promises, uh, but it's based on Romans 15, 18 through 19, uh, where Paul is saying that the full gospel includes signs and wonders. So Pentecostalism started, then the charismatic movement, then the word of faith movement. And the markers that we need to pay attention to are speaking in tongues, healing other supernatural gifts, and here's one that has always followed all three of these movements, is preaching of the imminent return of Christ. All Christians believe, well, most, I mean, how, how do I want to phrase this? All Orthodox Christians should, should believe that Christ will return one day. Every, every Orthodox Christian believes that. By orthodox, I mean that their their theology is is foundationally correct. But it is, and it has been the these uh, these Pentecostal charismatics that have that have regularly taught Jesus could be returning tomorrow. What are you going to do about that today? They're not the only ones that preach that way. They're not the only ones that do that, but they are among the groups that have really brought into prominence this idea, Jesus could return at any moment. What are you going to do about it? So as I said, this way of thinking is only about 120 years old, um, and there has been a lot of pushback, a tremendous amount of pushback against the Pentecostals, the Charismatics, and the Word of Faith group. Pushback has come from academics and scholars, from the local clergy level, even like media and people looking into the church have pushed back against some of the things that have happened in these various churches and denominations. I want to give you, though, the, uh, the scholastic terminology. Um, it's cessationism, versus continuationism. Cessationism teaches that the miracles and the miraculous no longer are operational within the church. Continuationism is where the charismatic Pentecostals fall, which says that those things have continued from Christ. Um, cessationists, um, I am familiar with two arguments defending cessationism. Uh, the first one is that the miracles died with the last apostle. I've heard church people say this my whole life, basically, but I have never read of a reputable scholar that holds this position, at least a, a modern scholar that holds this position. Um, and that's because it really doesn't hold any weight when you start to think about it logically. We know that other Christians, other than the remaining 11 apostles, after Judas died, I know Matthias became 12, so maybe 12, but 
We know that other Christians were performing miraculous signs other than the twelve. Ananias, who healed Paul, for instance. It was Ananias that prayed for Paul to be able to see again. So we are sure that other Christians were performing miracles and working within the miraculous. Philip dealing with the Ethiopian, for instance. So we know that those Christians were interacting with the supernatural. And if we follow this line of thinking that just when John died, John the Beloved died, everybody else lost their ability to do the miraculous works that they've been doing, I feel like that would have made the equivalent of the news. Because when you consider John died either in um, Ephesians or sorry in Ephesus or the island of Patmos, we're not 100% sure, but in one of those. So let's pick another city that we're familiar with, Corinth. You are in Corinth, minding your own business. Every single week, you have church, and somebody gets healed, somebody gets healed, somebody gets healed. John dies. You have no idea. All of a sudden, somebody comes up and asks for prayer. No healing. Somebody would have written about this, that, that across the known world, because we have to remember, by the time that John died, the gospel covered three continents from Spain to India down into Africa. Somebody would have noticed, hey, everybody's kind of lost the ability to heal. This is super strange. Tertullian or somebody would have written about this, but we don't have any writings to this. So that's probably not what happened, and the logic really isn't there. What most cessationists that I have talked to and have read about, what their thought is, is that the signs and wonders were a temporary movement until the Bible was completed. Once Scripture had been finalized, the world no longer needed signs and wonders as an evidence of Christ because the written Word of God was now delivered. This is the argument, then, that as long as we have Scripture, we don't need those signs and wonders to point people to Christ. The continuationist crowd would say that we actually are blessed with both because there is a common good element uh, it's not just pointing people to salvation, though that obviously that is of utmost importance, but there's a common good element that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians where sometimes people just get to be blessed because God's a blesser. So those are the two ideas, cessationism and continuationism. If you believe that the supernatural um, has and the signs and wonders have ceased, then ces- cessation ceased, then you are a cessationist. If you believe that there is still room in some capacity for the miraculous works of God uh, and the signs and wonders of God to move today through his people, because that's the thing. A lot of cessationists would say God still does the miraculous on his own. He doesn't need other people. Um, But the continuationists would say that God still works through his people in these ways. Um, that's the that's the scholastic stuff there. Before we get into like the the timeline, the chronology of things, um, I want us to know about four people. There are four people, in my opinion. By the way, this is all this is all my research and in my opinion and my ideas. Uh, but there are four people that helped lay the foundation for Pentecostalism. Remember, it started with the Pentecostals, then the Charismatics, then the Word of Faith. There are four people that helped lay these foundations down um, and and really kind of five, but yeah, I may show you five, but at least four. And the first is a guy named John Alexander Dewey. 
I'll be honest with you. I have no idea how to pronounce this guy's last name. It's D-O-W-I-E. Could be Doey. Could be Dowie. I'm from, I'm, I grew up in Texas, and we have something called the Bowie Knife, which is B-O-W-I-E. And so, if you know, if I give him the Texas pronunciation, John Alexander Dewey. A lot of people would say, like, Alexander Dewey. Um, he lived from uh, May 25th, 1847 to March 9th, 1907. He was born um, in Scotland, um, but, moved, but lived a lot of his life in South Australia. His dad was a minister, and so he became a minister as well. Uh, but while he was in Australia, Alexander Dowie started um, seeing that people were getting healed miraculously according to his prayers. And there were some other miracles that followed him as well, like rain during a drought. Eventually, um, Dowie, Dewey uh, went to Illinois in the United States of America and continued his ministry there. Thousands of people followed him. So many people were following him that he actually started or founded Zion, Illinois, as a place for his followers to go. Unfortunately, uh, John Alexander Dewey got wrapped up in some bad business practices um, and had to step down as the leader of his church movement. He drew a pension until he died. Um, but this is a guy that laid the foundation as a famous faith healer. He was known throughout the world. Um, people knew who this guy was. Again, he was he he started life in Scotland and then uh, you know went to Australia. He went back to Scotland. Then he went to the United States. So he had roots in several continents. People knew who this guy was, and really opened that door for the idea of faith healer. He did not speak in tongues, as far as I can tell. Um, and and so there's there's that. But he was a faith healer. Another guy that I want you to know about is a guy named Smith Wigglesworth. And Smith Wigglesworth is one of my favorite Christian historical figures. There's just a lot of really interesting stories that follow this guy around. He, if, if these stories are true, he lived a very interesting life around all of the miraculous things that he saw, all of the healings that he participated in. He had a very unique style um, to all of this, but he also has a, one of the most interesting names that has ever existed. And my theory is, is that his parents were so apologetic to him about his last name that they made his first name a mundane last name. Like the reason why his name is Smith is because his parents were like, hey, sorry, we named you Wigglesworth, but you can be a Smith too if you want. And so that's my theory. Uh, I have no evidence to base on that. That's just what I think. So he was a British guy, uh, born June 8th, 1859, died March 12th, 1947. Again, he was a faith healer as well. Interesting thing about him and his ministry is that his wife is who taught him how to read. He almost exclusively read the Bible. That's basically all that he ever read. And he and his wife had a tag team ministry. She would do the preaching. Apparently, she was a dynamite preacher. Um, and then everybody would come up afterwards, and Smith would heal them all. And that was just kind of what they did. That's just kind of how they operated. Um, so again, very famous faith healer. I can't tell you if he spoke in tongues. I don't know about that. Um, I believe, though, it is Smith Wigglesworth. Um, I could be getting him and Dewey mixed up, Alexander Dewey, but I believe, I believe, check my facts, I believe it was Smith Wigglesworth that, like, 
would pray over handkerchiefs and then send them to people to wipe on whatever ailment they had um, as, a, as a way to heal them. Another guy that I want you to know about is George Mueller. George Mueller was a German-born uh, guy, but eventually found his way to England as well. Born September 27, 1805, died March 10, 1898. And George Mueller is particularly special for his prayers of faith. I think something like 10,000 prayers were answered in his lifetime. Um, he ran several orphanages. He had a publishing house for making Bibles for missionaries. He ran all kinds of Christian schools. I mean, this guy had a lot of ministries under his belt. And what was interesting about this guy isn't how many ministries that he ran. It's that he ran them without ever asking for money, ever. Literally any time that any of his uh, ministries needed money, he would go and pray and in faith expect God to answer the prayer. And every single time the prayer was answered. He's got a, a, a biography out there that is full of uh, diary notes that he kept and newsletters that he would send out to people that would give to his ministry. He took vociferous notes um, and, and a lot of, of detail on the prayers that were being answered. And I will say this, this is my personal opinion, read the biography. Well, I'll be honest with you. I read most of the biography. I didn't finish it because it is much more interesting to talk about than to read. Because what you're essentially reading, like 70% of the book is, and we woke up the morning and we found that there was no money for the, for the children to have bread. So the staff and I went and prayed for an hour and then a knock on the door came and somebody delivered three pounds and six pence. And that was just enough for the day's bread. So we went and bought the bread. And then the next day we found that we didn't have enough for the milk. So we went and we prayed for the milk and somebody showed up with four pence, you know, whatever. And like, it's, it's so, I feel so awful actually admitting it's so boring to read because it's just, like, we needed the thing, so we prayed for the thing, then we got the thing. We needed the thing, we prayed for the thing, then we got the thing. And I can't believe that I'm saying out loud that it is boring to read because of all of the miracles that are being performed. But golly, it's kind of boring to read because it just reads like a ledger. But what we see in George Mueller is this idea of believing that prayers are going to be answered immediately. That was, that was his shtick, was this faith prayer. And I don't mean shtick in a negative way. That was just like his claim there is prayers of faith, that if you add faith to your prayers and you believe that God will answer them, he will. Um, another person that I want you to know about is a guy named E.W. Kenyon. Um, E.W. Kenyon, it, he's, he's a, a lot of people would say that he is the like theological or originator of like the word of faith idea. Um, he was born in 1867. He died in 1948. Um, he is the the pastor of New Covenant Baptist Church um, and founder of the Bethel Bible Institute in Spencer, Massachusetts. Uh, but he, really, he is the guy that influenced a guy named Kenneth Hagin. Um, and so we're going to talk about Kenneth Hagin here in just a little bit, but you should probably know about the theology or the theological works of E.W. Kenyon as well. And then the last person that I want you to know 
is a guy named John Wesley. You may know John Wesley. You may know his brother because he wrote a lot of hymns. John Wesley started, or he laid the theological foundation for the Methodist church, Methodism. Um, and John Wesley, um, let's see, I didn't actually look up when he, uh, when he lived. Hold on just a second as I get my Google foo out. John Wesley, born June 28th, 1703, um, died March 2nd. 1791. Again, this is the guy that is credited with laying the theological foundation for Methodism, and he has a really interesting theology around um, grace or second blessing. Um, there's a term that we need to know about because of how influential it is in the charismatic Pentecostal movement called second blessing. It it has come to mean something else in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, but John Wesley started the term second blessing or second work of grace, that every single Christian person needs to experience two works of grace in their life. The first work of grace was the new birth, to be forgiven or just, you know, to become a Christian. But there's a second work of grace, or a second blessing, which is the sanctification. Sanctification, when somebody is fully sanctified, they are free of all sin. They are exactly like Christ, free of all sin. And John Wesley taught that a second blessing needed to occur, or a second work of grace needed to occur, for somebody to be completely free of sin. That could be a miraculous, instantaneous sanctification, or it could take a long time to work out, but all Christians needed to get to this place. So what that tells us is that John Wesley did not believe in the idea that somebody could be, in a sense, sanctified like Christ, but still sin, that he really needed that to be worked out, that a Christian person should get to a place while still on earth where they were no longer sinning. Uh, and in fact, the Methodists, after John Wesley died, really dove into the sanctification lifestyle that a Christian person needs to be completely free of sin. That's the goal. The goal of Christianity is to be free from all sin, inwardly and as an outward expression. But what John Wesley gave us is this concept of a second blessing. And that leads us finally now into the history of the Pentecostal Charismatic Word of Faith movement. And it all starts with a guy named Charles Fox Parham. Charles Parham, born June 4th, 1873, died January 29th, 1929. Think about how that wasn't that long ago when he died. That wasn't that long ago when this all happened. So Charles Parham, Charles F. Parham, was a Methodist minister understood this second blessing idea and he had it in his mind that this was this there was something else to it that there was something that he wasn't that he wasn't getting there was something that the that the church just didn't have access to there was something else there um, and in a pursuit to figure out what this other thing was and to experience a different level of God, to experience a second blessing of God in a very real and tangible sense, he started the Bethel Bible School 
in Topeka, Kansas. Um, and for a few years, I mean, he got students. They were they were in pursuit of this deeper thing. Um, and between some semesters during the winter, um, or after Christmas at least, Charles Parham gave his students this this goal of trying to like get something deeper from God. And on January 1st, 1901, a woman by the name of Agnes Osman spoke in tongues for the very first time. The first time that we are familiar with the idea of somebody speaking in tongues as an expression uh, or, or as, a, as a result of praying to God about it is Agnes Osman, January 1st, 1901, at the Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas. Over the next couple of days and weeks, the other students caught on board. Charles Parham also caught on board. They all started speaking in tongues. Well, this caused no small stir, and people started calling this uh, not Bethel Bible School, but Bethel Babel School. Hilarious, uh, because they were speaking in weird tongues like the Tower of Babel. But Charles Parham had the opportunity to uh, go and teach this stuff all around the country. And so he had little pockets in several states of people that believed this and people that spoke in tongues. And he was watching this quote-unquote second blessing. And this is how a lot of people associate second blessing now. Um, and it, I probably should have talked about um, baptism of the Holy Spirit and uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, is there a place that I can talk about that better? No. Okay, I'll talk about it now. So the second blessing that—I was looking at my notes— the, the second blessing that a lot of people talk about now is in reference to something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that is a term that we find in Scripture, is a, is a second experience that a Christian person can have. The first experience is they recognize their need for Jesus, um, they cry out for salvation, and they are saved. There's a second experience where they ask the Holy Spirit to come to them, come on to them. Um, and once they are baptized in the Holy Spirit, now the Christian person can speak in tongues. That's kind of the evidence that you look for that the baptism's taken place. person can speak in tongues, and you can do miraculous works like healing and miracles. There are some groups that do not use the term um, baptized in the Spirit, but they would use the term filled with the Spirit. There are some Christians within this um, theological world that would say that you are filled with the Holy Spirit at salvation. Or, sorry, correction. You are baptized by the Spirit at salvation, and that is also a scriptural principle. But then, throughout the course of a Christian person's life, they can regularly be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is actually something that Billy Graham taught in his book, uh, The Holy Spirit, that a, a Christian is baptized into faith, uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit into the church, um, but regularly experience a filling. The practical effect of being baptized or being filled is really the same. There's supposed to be a supernatural expression, typically by tongues, and then often by supernatural works as well. So I needed to 
clarify that. That's the second blessing. So James Parham, sorry, Charles Parham was going all over the United States talking about his version of the second blessing, which had this evidence of speaking in tongues. Um, and one place that it took root was in Houston, Texas. There was a school that he was able to put together down in Houston, Texas. And there are two people that we need to know about from Houston, Texas, William Joseph Seymour and Lucy Farrow. William Joseph Seymour was probably one of the most gifted students of this school. And James, I keep calling him James, Charles Parham uh, told William to reach the people in Texas. Here's something historically significant about William Joseph Seymour and Lucy Farrow. Both of them African-American. So James, James, I keep calling him James. We're, Mr. Parham, we're about to rename you James because I can't get your name right. Charles Parham um, told William Joseph Seymour, you, basically, you are now the representative reaching the African, African-American community in Texas. Like, this is your job. Um, and... In case anybody is curious, the African-American church in the United States is, is highly linked with the charismatic movement. Not all African-American churches um, are full gospel in this sense. Um, many of them aren't. But the, the history of the African-American church and the history of the charismatic movement are linked in a way that is almost impossible to separate them, at least in the South. Um, so William Joseph Seymour was doing his thing down in Texas, but Lucy Farrow, who was the cook at the school, she really felt like God was telling her to go to Los Angeles and reach the people in Los Angeles with this second blessing. So Charles F. Parham sends Lucy Farrow down to Los Angeles, and she finds a ramshackle, barely held together by three nails and some spit building on Azusa Street, and she starts having church, and people start showing up, and miraculous things start to happen. So... Charles F. Parham sends William Joseph Seymour over there to see what's going on and to help lead the movement. And what we call this movement is the Azusa Street Revival. The Azusa Street Revival took place from 1906 to 1908. Technically speaking, the church continued until 1915, but the heyday was this two-year stretch. And as it started... There were no real leaders, and there was no music, there was no choir, there was no liturgy. Literally what was happening is people would just show up into the building and wait. They would wait for the Holy Spirit to lead someone to sing a song or to preach or to give some kind of exhortation or edification or to pray for a sick person or whatever. They would literally just show up in the room and wait for the Holy Spirit to move. That's what they did. They did not take any any presuppositions. Like we're not we're not planning a song list. We're not planning out a message. They would just show up and let God do whatever God wanted to do. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of healings of people speaking in tongues of all kinds of miraculous things. Obviously, this made the news. People knew about the Azusa Street revival. Um, but uh, 
eventually, Charles Parham showed up and saw what a success this church was. And it was a ramshackle church. You can look up you can look up pictures to this. It was it was a small building uh, that just did not look good at all. Um, so Charles Parham showed up because Lucy Farrow and William Seymour were his people. Like these are his students. And so he thought, well, my students have done this thing. I can kind of take leadership of this. And that didn't sit well with anybody because there weren't really any leaders. Everybody was equal. They just waited for God to move. So there was a falling out between William Seymour and uh, Charles Parham over this. Eventually, Charles Parham left, um, and William Seymour stayed the pastor of that church until 1915. Um, the other thing that is important for us to know about the Azusa Street Revival is how many missionaries were sent out of this church. But they weren't missionaries in the sense that we might think of it, where uh, a homegrown person is sent to another country with funding. People from around the world heard about what was happening in Azusa and came to L.A. to experience it. They came to that church, they experienced their second blessing, and then they went home and did the same thing. This is one of the reasons why the charismatic movement has, has spread so quickly, is because during that two-year period, dozens if not hundreds of quote-unquote missionaries would come from their homeland, experience this revival, and then go back and recreate it. That, that's one of the most significant things that happened, is even though it was a relatively small church that only existed for in, in its heyday for two years, it had worldwide reach, literally worldwide reach, and we consider this the start of the Pentecostal movement. It was either January 1st, 1901, when Agnes Osmond spoke in tongues for the first time, or the Azusa Street Revival in 1906. That's when the Pentecostal movement started. And one of the things that we need to understand about the early Pentecostal and charismatic movements is that they did not initially try to create their own denominations. Because now in the modern era, these, these folks, the Word of Faith, the charismatics, they really identify with the evangelical crowd. But when all of this was starting, that was not the case. They, most, most practitioners of this, most people who thought this way, had no design to start their own denomination, to start their own church. What they were wanting to do was to take this second blessing and this miraculous stuff back to their church. And the origins of all of this wasn't evangelical, but in mainline churches, even Catholic churches. There is a... A, there was a Pentecostal charismatic movement in the Catholic Church. There was a Pentecostal charismatic movement in many of the mainline churches, at least in the United States. By the way, when we're talking about the history of all of this, I'm really focusing in on the United States because, one, that's kind of where it started, but two, that's kind of what I know. So what we know then is that in 1960, a guy named Dennis J. Bennett, who is the rector of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, is where the, where the charismatic movement started. Um, he, again, he was the rector of, the, of an Episcopal church, like the Episcopal church in Van Nuys, California. April 3rd, 1960, he gives a sermon to his church about second blessing and about the miraculous and about healing. 
And then the next week he comes back and he does it again. And I think that next week was Easter. And then he comes back the third week, does it again. Eventually the leaders of the Episcopalian church asked him to step down. Again, the idea is that Dennis J. Bennett was wanting his church, all of the Episcopals, he wanted all of the Episcopalians to receive this charismatic blessing. By this point, it had already started to morph into seeing healings, into seeing miraculous works. Um, there were there were groups that were focusing on speaking in tongues. There were business leaders that were having groups about all of this. There's an interesting book called "They Shall Speak in Tongues," which kind of walks a journalist through his uh, through his. Uh, getting into speaking in tongues. Um, but then this next level of seeing the other mir miracles happen along with speaking in tongues, which we see in 1 Corinthians 13, started to happen. So the, the beginning of the charismatic movement um, really is focused on this guy, uh, Dennis J. Bennett um, from Van Nuys, California, April 3rd, 1960. And this is because really, from really like the 40s, 50s, and 60s, that charismatic movement was trying to happen in mainline churches, in Catholic churches, Anglican churches, in Methodist churches, in Baptist churches. It was trying to happen within those churches, and this, inadvertently, I think, maybe maliciously by some people, but I think by and whole, inadvertently, is another reason why the charismatic movement has had such a difficult time finding ground and acceptance with many of the other denominations of Christianity. It's because historically, what was happening more often than not, or at least enough that it made people notice, somebody would experience a second blessing, they would get this revelation on uh, healing and faith and speaking in tongues, and would go back to their home church and start telling everybody what they learned. And it was causing rifts, and it was causing division. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of church splits over this issue. Hundreds, if not thousands, of clergymen and women were asked to leave their posts because of this issue. It caused real fighting, real division. It has caused real pain. And saints that are old enough to remember all of this know what I'm talking about. There was real fighting. Head, if your church had a headquarters somewhere, there was a fight and a split over it. If it had an associational meeting during the time, there was a fight and a split over it. I don't think any church denomination in the United States uh, was, was safe from experiencing the pain that these splits were causing. And this is why these denominations in charismatic Pentecostal churches really started to form because the uh, most of the other churches weren't really accepting of it. And I kind of get why, because eventually the word got out that if you get one of these charismatics in your church, you better watch them because they're going to steal half your people. They're going to they're gonna try to become a Sunday school leader. They're going to convince everybody in the Sunday school of this new blessing. Boom, there go 30 of your people. And if you are listening to this and you were a part of the charismatic movement during that time, you know... That, that wasn't anybody's intention, but you know that that happened. 
And, uh, and that's just a part of the history of the whole thing. And that's why a lot of hurt feelings happened around the charismatic movement. By the time the 80s rolled around, though, um, all of these denominations—and I'll give you some examples of denominations here a little bit—a lot of these denominations already existed, these kinds of churches already existed. Um, and in 1980, a guy named Kenneth Hagin Sr. hit the scene. And he is widely considered as the father of the Word of Faith movement. Kenneth Hagin um, was uh, highly influenced by E.W. Kenyon's theology, um, and and Kenneth Hagin is the guy uh, that really started the the health and wellness um, doctor, like the the way of way of thinking, the theology. Um, his his church or his ministries was called Rama Ministries. I don't think he really um, settled down on a on a on a on a singular church. He was more of a, a general teacher. Wrote all kinds of books, was on the radio, was on TV. Um, but Kenneth Hagin Sr. in 1980 um, is considered to be the beginning of the Word of Faith movement. And Kenneth Hagin was one of the first guys on TV um, not obviously the first guy. There were preachers on TV for a long time, but he did make a splash on TV, really did start influencing the culture um, in 1980. So what we have then is around 1901 or 1906 is the Pentecostal movement. 1960, the Charismatic movement. 1980, Word of Faith movement. And the Word of Faith movement has progressed since then. I think where we are now, this is me, this is my opinion, I don't have any research for this, I don't have any studies for this, this is a thousand percent anecdotal, my observations. I believe that what we are experiencing right now in the American Christian Church is a form of neo-charisma or neo-word of faith. Um, and what I mean by that is not the Matrix guy, I mean a, a, a newer version of it in the rise of the non-denominational church. Now look, the thing about non-denominational church, that's generic peas at the grocery store. We have no idea what's what's beyond the label. If if you if your grocery store has a has a, a shelf of orphan cans that are just labelless silver cans but you get them half off, that's sometimes the the non-denominational church. It could be that it was like a Southern Baptist Church that didn't want to have Baptist in the name anymore um, and wanted to get rid of the pews. It's no neither quote-unquote non-denominational, but really theologically they're Southern Baptist. It could also be, though, that this church is a word-of-faith church that didn't want to have any of the trappings of the televangelist of the 80s, and so they, in a sense, rebranded. But theologically, they are absolutely charismatic word-of-faith. If you go in there, they do believe in healing. They do have people speaking in tongues. They do stand on the promises, and and you might even hear you might hear a gospel presentation uh, involving uh, promises of blessing and health. So, uh, I think that that's where a lot of our our non denominational churches are right now. Some of the people who go to those churches may have no idea. They may have no idea. I don't know if this is true. I'm about to I'm about to throw so many generalizations out there, but again, I'm talking about anecdotes uh, in my personal experience. In my personal experience, again, I grew up in Texas. I have noticed two things that are uh, fascinating in the restaurant world. It's really the same thing about two different kinds of food. It doesn't matter 
every single Tex-Mex restaurant I have ever been to in Texas has the exact same menu. It's as though they are a chain, a chain franchise. It's as though there is a, they, but there is more consistency there than at McDonald's. You have the same kinds of enchiladas. You have the same kind of chips and salsa. They have the exact same menu, even though not related. Same thing is true of Chinese food buffet. Chinese food buffet in Texas, at least, or the parts of Texas that I've been in, are almost the exact same. But none of these restaurants are the same restaurant. They're all individually owned, but they all have the exact same menu and the same layout. And they're like, it's crazy, even though they're not connected, they're all kind of the same. And the reason why I bring this up is that non-denominational churches can sometimes be like this. That they're not connected at all, but they all have the same stage, stage design. They all sing the same songs. Their pastor wears the same skinny jeans. By the way, I am one of these non-denominational pastors, so I'm picking on my own kind here. Um, they have the same classes. They have the. I mean, it's they're none of them are related, but they also they all have the same pork fried dumplings, and they all have the same cheese enchiladas. There's an analogy in there somewhere. Uh, anyway. So I think that that's where we are now as we have this like neo word of faith um, that's hard to nail down because you don't have a church that's like, uh, I don't know, word of faith church, uh, but it'll just be like, I don't know, the way, the way fellowship. And you're like, oh yeah, well, the way fellowship. That sounds, that sounds nice. That's, that could be, it might be, I'm not picking on the way because there are some good churches called the way. Um, there's a lot of good churches named the way. Um, anyway, my point is uh, that's where I think we are. Here are some denominations that fall into these categories of Pentecostal Charismatic Word of Faith. Assemblies of God, Church of God, uh, which there's several Church of Gods. This is the Cleveland, Tennessee one. Foursquare churches, Church of Nazarene, um, some Wesleyans. Uh, so John Wesley, John Wesley's teaching created a group called Wesleyan Arians, uh, Wesley, Wesleyan Arianism, um, and Arianism in contrast to Calvinism is essentially that, um, people have the free choice to accept Christ. And as a result of being able to choose Christ, they can choose to unchoose Christ, that you can lose your salvation. So sanctification really is a big deal. Um, that's why John Wesley um, is kind of the originator of that, because there's an expectation that a Christian person gets to a point in their life where they really are acting perfectly, they're fully sanctified, um, and that a sign that they're not there is that uh, that they're losing their salvation is increased sin in their life. Um, so some Wesleyans um, fall into the charismatic idea, not all. Wesleyans fall into that idea. The Church of God in Christ, United Pentecostals, and Apostolic Pentecostal Church. But again, anywhere, anything that has like word of faith in it, um, also start asking around if you see something like uh, a Bible church um, or fellowship or non-denominational. Those are, those are potential catch-alls for all of that. But I also said early on that one in three Christians in the world in the world are charismatic. How in the world did that happen? It's because charismatic leaders in churches have done as good or a better job 
of grabbing on to media than any of the other denominations. Publication, radio, television, and now social media, they're all doing it better. And as a result, the Christianity that most people are being exposed to through popular media formats and have been for decades has been something of either Pentecostal charismatic or particularly word of faith groups. So what I would like to do is share with you some of the most influential charismatic or word of faith churches that I'm familiar with, and and then I will share with you some leaders. And here's what I want to preface. Some of these places are flat out open about their beliefs. They just, yep, that's us. We are, we are that group. We are Word of Faith. That is us. Some of these places understand how divisive these labels can be and won't use these terms about themselves, but theologically they fall into this category. Um, and, and so I want to say this is these, the, this list. I didn't pull this off of you know some Christianity Today list. This is my experience. This is my research. This is my study. Um, and so this, this is my opinion, but if any of these are questionable for you, I encourage you to do your own research, but these are just my thoughts on some of the most influential charismatic churches in the United States, starting with Bethel in Redding, California. Bethel, in a sense, is the reason for this podcast because I was talking about whether or not churches can sing worship songs written in churches that they don't agree with theologically, and Bethel's kind of the poster child for getting picked on with this. Bethel um, is Word and Faith Charismatic Church in Redding, California. Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama. Chris Hodges is the pastor there. If your church, is ha- if your church has a dream team for their volunteers or a Next Steps program, you can thank Church of the Highlands. Elevation Church, they are another church that has a lot of great worship coming out right now, uh, popular worship uh, coming out right now. Um, this is the Graves into Gardens, the Blessing, um, that whole that that group there, um, South Carolina, and uh, Stephen Furtick is their pastor, and he is on TBN uh, as as a preacher, very charismatic preacher. International House of Prayer in Kansas City is uh, is falls in this category. Brooklyn Tabernacle, you might be familiar with the Bro- Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Jim Cimbala is the pastor and his wife's name, and I cannot for the life of me remember her name. Let me Google Foo real quick. Jim Cimbala, his wife's name is dun, 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 dun. Carol. Carol either ha- is or has been the leader of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, which is a really cool story because she like can't read music, and the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir is just a powerhouse of a group. But anyway, charismatic. Gateway Church in Dallas, the Robert Morris Church, charismatic word of faith. Uh, Morning Star is a big one in Charlotte, North Carolina. The Belonging Company is a seven-year-old church in Nashville. Um, very new, but charismatic word of faith. The Dream Center. Uh, Matthew Barnett, and subsequently the Dream City in Phoenix uh, with Tommy Barnett, um, his dad. Uh, Charismatic Word of Faith. And the Dream Center like, r- has written the book on serving your geographic area. Like 
a couple of blocks around the Dream Center, like just is radically changed. That church has adopted L.A. Um, it's really just an amazing thing. Uh, the Upper Room in Dallas, a uh, big worship group there. Hillsong, just all of Hillsong. I don't know if they still associate with the Assemblies of God, but Hillsong started as an Assemblies of God church. Uh, the Village Church, this one was actually surprising as I was doing a little bit of research on this. This is Matt Chandler. Matt Chandler is a famous Reformed guy. Reformed theology, Calvinism. Um, only only a few people are elected by God to be saved. Everyone else, sorry. Um, and for whatever reason, historically, the Reformed group, the Calvinists, have really pushed against the Charismatics. Really, I mean, like, that's the group that has really aggressively pushed against the, the Charismatics the most. And uh, um, Matt Chandler came out with—so it may not be fair to put the Village Church on this list, but I can say Matt Chandler at least— Matt Chandler actually came out with a sermon a couple of years ago where he said he felt like a theological orphan because he's a charismatic reform guy, a reformed charismatic guy, um, which I thought was super interesting because there's not that many of them, and I've not heard him say it, but I might throw Mark Driscoll into that group as well. Again, this is anecdotal. Mark Driscoll, if for whatever reason you're listening to this podcast and this is not true, I apologize. If you'd like to clear your name, reach out. I'll get you on the podcast. We'll make things right. Um, and this is true of anybody that I mentioned, by the way. If you want to clear your name and you'd like to be on the podcast to do so, just let me know. We'll get you on the podcast. We'll clear you up. You can explain your theological point of view in a much more better in a much better way than I can. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, so he falls into that category, which I thought was super interesting. The, the Potter's House, that's T.D. Jakes' church, again in Dallas, City of Refuge, which is in L.A., Lakewood Church, Joel Osteen down in Houston, Texas, and then Vineyard. The Vineyard, I might call this a whole denomination. John Wimber uh, started this group in Anaheim, California, um, and before Bethel was blowing up, Vineyard was writing worship stuff. So if you, if you ever sang Vineyard songs back in the 90s or 80s, um, that was charismatic stuff. So let's talk about some of the charismatic leaders or pastors. These are going to be some pastors of the churches that I just mentioned, but I've got some authors and other leaders as well. Chris Hodges, um, that's, uh, that's Birmingham, Alabama. That's, uh, what is that, Church of the Highlands. Stephen Furtick over at Elevation. Robert Morris at Gateway. Tommy Barnett. Um, Matthew Barnett with Dream City and Dream Center. Paula White. Uh, Paula White, of course, was Donald Trump's like official minister. Matt Chandler again, T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, Joyce Myers. Um, some controversial ones here, Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn is the guy. You've probably seen uh, clips of him around. He normally wears an all-white suit. He has white hair himself. And this is the guy... It's like pushing people over, shoving them across the stage, throwing wheelchairs. He really does make a dramatic show out of healing. Um, and he's a guy that has caused controversy because of the showmanship that he puts into his ministry. If he has healed as many people as he claims to have healed, then literally tens of thousands of people have been healed by Benny Hinn. Um, but... He put he does it in such a way that it's off putting. It's weird for it's weird to watch. Um, if you're if you're not into that kind of thing, so he's one that's caused some controversy. Um, let's see, Kenneth Hagen Senior. I've already talked about him a little bit. Kenneth Copeland, um, he's another guy that has caused some 
controversy. There are memes about Kenneth Copeland going around right now as well. Um, you might know him as the guy that tried to blow COVID-19 away. Um, there's a lot of videos out there of him, you know, COVID-19. And then he's got his little guys behind him, COVID-19. Um, be gone or whatever he says. Um, so that's that's uh, Kenneth Open. But before he did all of that, there was there was other controversy around him because Kenneth Copeland is super duper rich, and uh, that makes people uncomfortable when pastors have that much wealth. Uh, he's got private planes, I think you know several hundred millions of dollars, that kind of stuff. But he's a He's a prosperity gospel guy. So part of the message that he preaches is the faithful will be blessed. And so his lifestyle is a justification for the gospel that he preaches. Another name that could go on that is Jesse Duplantis, a guy in uh, in uh, Louisiana. Uh, he has three private planes. Extraordinarily wealthy guy. Um, so that makes some people uncomfortable. Um, and, you know, it's possible that you could look at the parable of the rich fool about once your storehouse is full, you're supposed to give the rest away. You might be able to um, put that onto some of the pastors that at some point you have enough and the rest of it should be given out generously. But um, that's not the point that I'm trying to make. I'm just giving you names. Uh, Joseph Prince. Uh, he's a really interesting guy from Singapore. Really good preacher. Really good preacher. Um, I find him engaging anyway. A guy from uh, Colorado Springs area, Andrew Womack. He has a school called Karis Bible. Um, not a not a pastor per se, but a, a teacher. Uh, he, he's on TV. He's got millions of people that follow him. Uh, Bill Johnson, he's the pastor of, of, uh, of uh, Reading. Uh, what's it called? Bethel. Thank you. Nobody's in the room with me. Of Bethel. Um, John and Lisa Bevere, they're both authors, husband and wife there. John Eldridge, who wrote Wild at Heart. Um, and then here's some historical names for you. John G. Lake, A.A. A. Allen, Oral Roberts, William Barham, Catherine Coleman, Amy Simple McPherson. Those are all some historic people. They are not living anymore, uh, but really kind of helped get the charismatic word of faith Pentecostal movement up and running. So that is not an exhaustive history of the charismatic movement, but I hope that that gives you a little bit of insight. My hope uh, for you is the takeaway is understanding that there is a difference between Pentecostal's charismatic word of faith, that it was a progressive idea, started with speaking in tongues, added the gifts, then standing on the promises of Scripture— only some people of the Word of Faith movement stand on that prosperity stuff. Not everybody does. Um, and that there are distinctions within these denominations. And just like anything else in life, probably the best thing for you to do uh, when you meet somebody that falls into a category of theology that is different than your own is ask questions and be an active listener. Uh, and you guys can share some commonalities. You can talk through the reasons for differences, and you might be able to gain a brother through or sister through conversation. Um, on top of that, I really wanted you guys to understand just how influential the charismatic movement is, um, Pentecostal charismatic word of faith movement is. When you consider the authors in churches that are pushing the Christian culture right now, it's overwhelmingly, it's overwhelmingly the Pentecostal Charismatic Word of Faith movement. I talked to you guys about having a church history class 
where I used this textbook where I quoted from at the top of the thing. One of the papers that I had to write is about the influence of the charismatic movement in culture. And at the time of writing that paper, I looked at the uh, top 10 most influential worship albums that had been um, created that year or the year before, I think. And I, and I, and I want to say six or seven out of 10 had come from charismatic origins. And the other ones I just couldn't corroborate. They might have been as well. So when you consider how many churches are singing new songs, songs that, you know, they weren't, they're not in the hymnal, like new songs are not in the book of common prayers or the old liturgies, but new songs are being written today. If your church is singing these songs, it is highly likely that you have sung songs written by somebody that has a charismatic or Pentecostal lean or a word of faith lean. It's just in the world right now. Um, and I want to just bring up the influence of it because at some point, if you're somebody that hasn't gotten on on board with being friendly with with folks in these lines of thinkings, I would encourage you to try to find some common ground. I'm not saying that we have to agree on everything. Until Jesus comes back and tells all of us where we're wrong and where we're right, we're just going to have to be okay with the fact that we don't all agree on things. But if Christ is still at the center and we're still saved by grace and not by grace— uh, through faith and not by works, so that no one can boast. I think we can find brothers and sisters. So that has been the church question of the day. If you would like to have your church question featured on the podcast, you can email your question to questions at donmckeg.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time, be blessed, and we will catch you later.